Christchurch, New Malden, 3rd of November 2019, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Romans and the Covenant, Living Out the Covenant. Okay, well, understanding how we changed once we became followers of Jesus Christ and recognise the, the implications of this for how we then live. That's what Romans chapter 6 is all about. And when we think about it, there are plenty of parallels because we all know people for whom a change in their status has then led to a change in their behaviour. So first-time parents is perhaps the best example of this. Nothing brings greater change than suddenly becoming a father or a mother and being presented with that tiny, dependent little baby. But it happens in other areas of life as well. The playboy prince who suddenly becomes a king and realises that he now has to act very differently because of the responsibility that he now holds. The gifted but petulant uh, member of a sports team who, on becoming captain, realises that they need to buck up their ideas and look after others. All examples of where a change of status should lead to a change of behaviour. And in Romans chapter 6, we really see the Christian equivalent of this. As Paul responds to the question of why Christians should seek to live lives of holiness rather than living lives of sin. And the answer that Paul gives in this chapter, Romans chapter 6, all centres upon the change of status that we underwent when we became Christians, the change of identity that took place when we became joined to Jesus Christ. But before we look a bit more at Paul's answer, it's good to think a little bit more about the question. Why should Christians seek to live lives of holiness rather than lives of sin? Now, in Paul's time, this question seemed to have, seems to have arisen from the emphasis that he placed upon Christians being saved by God's grace rather than by keeping the Jewish law. One of the really mysterious aspects of Romans that we'll look at in more detail in a couple of weeks' time is Paul's belief that God actually gave the law to Israel to intensify her sin, to actually make it worse. And we see Paul saying that at the end of chapter 5, the previous chapter to the one we're looking at this morning. You might want to have that open in front of you. Romans chapter 5, from verse 20 Paul says that God gave the law so that the trespass, the sin, might increase. But as soon as Paul has said that, he adds that where sin increased, grace increased all the more through the coming of Jesus. Jesus came to rescue people from sin and also what the law had done in intensifying that sin. But if all that was true... Paul's opponents seem to be saying, wasn't that really a mandate for Christians to carry on sinning? If the law really had that role, which perhaps people weren't sure about, if the law really had that role of intensifying the trespass, and if that increase of sin had really led to the increase of God's grace, wasn't that simply a mandate for Christians to carry on sinning? And at the root of this seems to have been a general concern that some had that 
Paul's teaching about the Jewish law no longer being binding, that would simply lead to a moral anarchy. Now, when you look at our culture today, we might need to concede that Paul's opponents had a bit of a point. For many people today, if God does exist, and if he is a God of love and grace, then that's seen as completely in conflict with any call to lead holy lives. Holiness itself is seen as a pretty outdated concept by many, isn't it? Including many, if we're honest, between the church as well, let alone outside of it. And people do struggle to see how this call to holiness, this call to lead distinctive holy lives, how that goes together with the grace of God in Jesus Christ. If our salvation is down to God's grace, God's completely undeserved forgiveness, then how does that go together with a call to holiness and the real importance of this? And the answer from Paul, as I've already hinted, comes down to this new status, this new identity that we took on when we became Christians. And the thing that represents this new status and which Paul talks about from pretty much near the start of this chapter, and the thing that actually underlines the entire chapter and everything that he says within it, is the covenant sign of baptism. If you're confused about the relationship between the gospel of grace and why Christians should lead holy lives, Paul says, think back to your baptism. Now, for many of us here, that's a rather strange thought, isn't it? Most of us here, I think, were probably baptised as infants, but even if some of you were baptised as adults, that event was quite a long time ago now, wasn't it? Baptism, as you'll already know, has caused massive disagreement between Christians. But sadly, the one thing that often unites Christians about baptism is this, that once it's done, it's more or less forgotten. Whatever the disagreements about baptism from the various different strands, that's almost the one thing that unites everyone about baptism, that once it's done, it tends to be forgotten, rather than being seen as having ongoing significance in the life of the person baptised. And Paul in this passage wants us to do the very opposite of forgetting about it. Paul in this passage wants us to remember our baptism, because, he says, it's the key to understanding the nature of the Christian life to which we're called. So I want you, and there may be a few people here who haven't been baptised, and speak to me afterwards if you'd like to be, but I'd like you now, and I think this is probably most, if not all of us here, to be able to do this, to think back to your baptism. Where did it take place, and when? My baptism took place on the 13th of April 1969, over 50 years ago now. Although on the 13th of April, uh, when it last came, I did uh, put a post up on Facebook thanking my parents for bringing me to baptism and their commitment towards me and all they've done for me over the years. I was quite glad that I discovered this certificate with the date on that enabled me to do that. I was baptised at Trevenson Church at Elugan in Cornwall. For those of you who are Poldark fans, the very same parish in which Demelza Khan was born. But think of where and when your baptism took place. Who were the other key people in that? They might have been your parents bringing you to baptism. 
It might be that there were other key people in that event. Perhaps the people that helped bring you to faith were present at that event if you were baptised when you were older. Remember back to your baptism, even if you're too young to actually have a conscious memory of it, hold in mind where it happened, who the crucial people were. This morning, as we look at what Paul says about its ongoing significance, it will be good as we try and follow through what Paul says about the significance of that event, if all of us here can hold in our mind some visual picture of where and when that took place. Because the first thing that Paul says is that we died with Christ in our baptism. Look from verse 3. Don't you know, Paul says from that verse on, that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death. We were therefore, he continues in verse 4, buried with him through baptism. And in the following verses, Paul speaks about us being united with Christ in his death and how our old self was crucified with him. Why? So he says that the body of sin might be done away with. So what happened when we were baptised, according to Paul, was the establishment of a union with Christ that was so deep that when he died, we died with him. Earlier I spoke about how the law actually increased Israel's sin, but that was precisely so that all of that sin could then be borne by Jesus as Israel's Messiah when he died on the cross. Belonging to the Messiah, belonging to Jesus, is now open to everyone through baptism. It's no longer exclusive. Anyone could belong to Christ through baptism. And if we're joined to Jesus the Messiah through our baptism, Paul says, then our old identity as hopelessly sinful people, is something that actually died with him. Sometimes, sadly, we talk about putting an animal out of its misery, don't we? When it's in such a bad way, so diseased or damaged or whatever it might be, that death is the only answer. As you'll know, there's a complex debate about whether such euthanasia or mercy killing should also apply to human beings. What Paul is saying here is that human beings in their fallen condition were so irredeemably sinful, if I can use that phrase, that our death was the only answer to that sin. Rather a hopeless message, we might think, until we hear the good news that that death occurred when Jesus was crucified. Because through our baptism, Paul says, our old identity as sinful human beings actually died with him. And anyone who has died, Paul says, has been freed from sin. So think back to your baptism whenever that occurred and think about how God released you from that old sinful identity. Because that person died with Jesus That old person, completely mired irredeemably in sin, that old person, well, they're dead, Paul says. Not only dead, but they're buried. Through this amazing act of God's grace in Jesus, that body of sin has been done away with. Paul says it's been buried in the ground. And so the implication is, 
the very last thing that we should be trying to do is to exhume that old body and continue to live within it once again. But what is to take its place? Well, that's where Paul goes further and says that not only have we died with Christ in baptism, but we have risen with Christ as well. Now here in Romans, Paul uses the future tense to talk about this. He says, if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will, future tense, certainly be united with him in his resurrection. And again he says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also, future tense, live with him. But in his letter to the Colossians, the passage that Cecily read, Paul also speaks about this rising with Christ as a past and present experience. Paul refers to both himself and the Christians in Colossae having been buried with Jesus in baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Paul sees faith as the vital lifelong response to our baptism. Faith is crucial. If we're baptised, that means a huge amount but without faith responding to it, it eventually means nothing. Faith is vital in response to our baptism. It's a bit like a cheque for a million pounds that has our name on it, baptism. It is wonderfully important, but if we don't cash it, if we never take it to the bank and pay it in, it actually ultimately counts for nothing. So faith is the vital, lifelong response to our baptism and the way God's promises are received. And it's the way that baptism joins us to the risen body of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus' risen body is free of every bit of the sin that Jesus carried on the cross, and because Jesus now lives for God in resurrected glory, that's what Paul says here, and because we are joined to his risen body, all of this says, Paul declares, that we need to count ourselves not only dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Through baptism and faith, God's resurrection life is present within us. And that again makes it inconceivable, Paul says, that we should allow sin to go on reigning in our lives. So again, for a second time, think back to your baptism. Think back to where and when it was. Think about those people who brought you to that moment. Picture if you can what you look like at that age. We make it a lot easier for people these days by videoing every baptism that takes place here at Christchurch and we give them a DVD to watch as their life continues. You'll have a rough idea of what you look like at that age. So picture that event joining you to the risen Christ. And as you've responded, to that event with ongoing faith in your life as you've claimed those promises of God and sought to walk in faith throughout your life. Picture that amazing resurrection life of Jesus Christ being shared with you. We have the privilege, the immense privilege, through baptism and through the faith that responds to that baptism, Paul says, of being part of the risen Jesus. Through our baptism, we are joined to the perfect, pure, resurrected Jesus. 
And therefore, again, Paul says, it's inconceivable that we could ever be complacent in any way about sin. We're joined to the perfectly pure resurrection life of Jesus, where sin and decay and anything deathly has no part. And therefore, Paul says, it's inconceivable that we could live in such a way that would be complacent about death and sin and evil and be living in such a way that those things are growing within our lives. Finally, in this passage, Paul says, still in reference to baptism, that we've been freed from slavery and we've been given a new calling. This series has been seeking to show how this letter to the Romans makes sense as Paul's exposition of how the coming of Jesus represented the climax of the covenant. We've seen Paul showing week by week how it fulfilled the fu- how it uh, represented the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Abraham. And we saw last week how it represented the answer to the sin of Adam, the very thing that God's covenant was designed to put right. And in this section of Romans, we see a further retelling of the covenant story as God's people, like the Israelites under Moses, they're rescued through water in chapter 6. They struggle with the law in chapter 7, that's two weeks' time. And they make their way in Romans 8, guided by God's presence, to the inheritance that he's promised them. That's coming up in three weeks' time. And the really powerful metaphor here is that of God's people being freed from slavery. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, weren't they, before God rescued them through the waters of the Red Sea and led them by his presence towards the Promised Land. And using that ancient covenant story that all of those readers would have known, Paul says that we as Christians are those ex-slaves. We've been liberated, he says, from slavery to sin. The really evil thing about slavery is that every single part of a person's life is under the control of someone else, isn't it? And sadly, slavery isn't just an ancient institution. We'd like to think that it is, but actually there are more slaves in the world today than when it was supposedly abolished back in the 19th century. Being set free from slavery, whether it was uh, as a result of what Wilberforce and others did in the 19th century, or if it's as a result of being rescued from human trafficking today. Being set free from slavery must be the most amazing experience, mustn't it? And it's inconceivable that anyone would ever voluntarily want to return to it. But we're told in the book of Exodus, and it's why it's so important that we read these stories in the light of the Old Testament stories that they evoke, We're told in the book of Exodus that when the going got tough, some of the Israelites did want to do that. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to being slaves. And that's a picture of how often we too are tempted to return and live under the very slavery that we've been liberated from. So for one last time, think back to your baptism. Close your eyes if it helps. Picture that water with which you were sprinkled or perhaps immersed in all those years ago. At that moment, God set you free from 
that slavery to sin. That slavery that would control our lives and force us into the most destructive and dehumanizing ways of living. The things that, whatever they might promise, lead only to death rather than to genuine life. That, Paul says, is the slavery from which we've been liberated. And that, Paul says, is the slavery that none of us should ever want to return to. But there's more to be said. So far this morning, I've talked about the way in which Paul shows how the new identity that we've received through being baptised into Christ makes it inconceivable that we should be complacent about sin. Through our baptism, we've been joined to Christ, meaning that in him, we've died to sin, been raised to new life, and set free from slavery. And all of those things mean that we should therefore turn our back on sin and not allow it to rule in our lives. But the baptised life to which we're called isn't just about renouncing sin. It's not just about turning our backs on a negative. It's about, Paul says, a wonderful positive. It's the exciting and fulfilling calling to become a servant of Christ. Paul even goes as far as to call this becoming a slave to righteousness. Slave, I think, is meant to be in inverted commas. Righteousness, as we've already heard in this series, is a covenant word, isn't it? Righteousness describes God's covenant commitment to putting the world right. And when we become joined to Jesus Christ through baptism, we're given the calling to be part of that work. That's why baptism is sometimes called the ordination of the laity. It's God's calling to live for him in the world. And rather than offering our body to sin... Rather than the parts of our body being what Paul uh, describes as instruments of wickedness, we're, in in, we're instead called to offer our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. We're called to offer ourselves to God to be instruments of his covenant purpose of bringing his loving justice to the world. That's what God called us to be part of when we were baptised into Christ all those years ago whenever and wherever and however that took place. So why should we commit ourselves to lives of holiness when we're saved by God's grace? The reason is that that grace of God conveyed to us in our baptism gave us a new status. It gave us a new identity which we've now got to live by. Responding to our baptism with a life of faith is essential for God's promises to be received, and that's a large part of our holiness. And the message of Romans chapter 6 is that the more that we recognise the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the more that we'll recognise the new identity that he gave us in Jesus Christ. And the more that we'll allow the Holy Spirit to lead us towards the promised land, and to go on being steadily transformed into the people that God made us to be. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for our baptism. We thank you for those people who were instrumental in leading us to that point in our lives, whether we were baptised as a child 
or as an adult or somewhere in between. Father God, we thank you for that new identity that you've given us, that we died with Christ in baptism and we're raised through our response of faith to that baptism to receive the resurrection life that belongs to Jesus. We thank you that we're ex-slaves, freed from that slavery to sin. Lord God, would you give us the motivation to live out this status, this identity in the way that we live our lives? Would you help us never to be complacent about sin or think that it doesn't matter? Would you help us to live as slaves for righteousness? as those who give our lives to the liberating freedom of living for you so that we display your covenant love, the love that came to rescue this world and bring your justice to it. We commit ourselves to that now. In Jesus' name, amen.